This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Live from the Fox News radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. I am Mary Welter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade today. I am so excited to be here. We have a lot to talk about. It's a big day today, which is weird because it's usually Fridays. Like weird, big things usually happen on Fridays in D.C. because they want to sweep it under the rug. But today is a big day here today. Uh, talk to Byron York about that. He's the chief political correspondent from the Washington Examiner. He's also a Fox News contributor, and his book, Obsession Inside the Washington Establishment's Never-Ending War on Trump, is so relevant today. Byron, thank you for joining me. Good morning. You know, when I wrote the book and chose the title, uh, Never-Ending War on Trump, I thought, well, you know, maybe it will end. Maybe that'll be outdated, but not yet. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no. And see, look at you. That was brilliant. Whoever came up with that idea for that title was fantastic because that book never gets dated, as you said, never gets old. Because who would have thought that what 19 months after Donald Trump left office, that they would be raiding his home, that this would be happening uh, unprecedented, as we keep hearing. Uh, today, the same judge that um, that signed, that gave the green light for the search warrant, uh, Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt, is going to decide, they're having a hearing, whether to make public the probable cause affidavit. Why is that affidavit so important? Well, because it would tell us a lot more about why the Justice Department did what it did. It said there's classified, you know, we know from the documents already released, that they took away X number of boxes of classified information. But why did they think this is important? What kind of information is it? We might know more with the affidavit. Basically, a search warrant says, I, the judge, uh, authorize you to search these premises at this time for these things. And I do it based on the attached affidavit. In other words, the reasons are in the affidavit. Well, in this case, the affidavit is secret, as it is in most of these criminal investigations. We haven't seen it, and I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a prophet, uh, but I don't think the judge is going to release this affidavit. I think it's going to be still secret if we were to talk tomorrow. Yeah, and and you're not alone in in that – in that assumption, I just want to quickly go to cut two here. This is uh, Alina Haba, who is uh, one of the um, one of Trump's attorneys, on what she thinks is going to happen today in that courtroom. Don't forget, Judge Reinhardt is the same magistrate judge that recused himself from my Hillary case about a month ago. Um, he is definitely not going to be a friendly judge necessarily, and. Um, there's, I would say it was highly unlikely, as we can see, the DOJ is already saying that they do not want us to see what was in the affidavit. Usually that's to protect witnesses um, and other things that have been cooperating with the justice system. So while I would love to see it and understand why you would ask for a raid with a cooperating president, do I believe that this judge is going to reveal it? No, I do not. 
Yeah. So so you're on the same page with a lot of people. And I yesterday I was having this conversation and I was thinking, you know, why would they not want to release this? And you have an interesting piece uh, in The Washington Examiner called Judge Judge Choi, whether unsealing affidavit for Mar-a-Lago raid will jeopardize Trump investigation. And what well, why do you think they will not release this today? Is it because what Adam Schiff is saying, it's going to endanger lives? We're going to kill people if we release this. No, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think the Justice Department said it, it would um, it would might uh, jeopardize ongoing investigations and ongoing uh, prosecutions. And I think, you know, there was some speculation in the beginning of this whole raid thing that the Justi- Justice Department acted quickly. It rushed to action because the documents involved, the classified documents, were so sensitive, involved such vital areas of national security that they simply had to put put them under lock and key and, and make them safe again. Well, this was not really about that. We've, we've since learned that Merrick Garland uh, tr- waited wait, weeks and weeks as he tried to decide what to do. Obviously, the uh, Justice Department knew a lot of, about a lot of this in early June. They waited months uh, to decide what to do. So this was not an operation to get the documents. It's more an operation to get Trump. And so there is some sort of um, uh, prosecution going on. We know, uh, and we, we didn't know before this, this raid, but we know now that the Justice Department convened a grand jury to investigate Trump on this documents matter. That's totally apart from the grand jury that's looking into January 6th. Um, so the Justice Department clearly is planning um, some sort of action here. I don't know whether they will pull the trigger in the end and indict the former president, but clearly they are taking all the steps that one would take if you were going to indict the former president. So let's just spitball here. What if they do decide to indict the president? Wouldn't precedents from previous cases before, like Bill Clinton with the tapes in the sock draw, um, with with uh, Barack Obama, with uh, with Hillary? I mean, there are so many examples of how the Records Act, how the, how how NARA, the National Archives worked with uh, previous presidents like Barack Obama so that he could decide as they could go through the records and decide what he wants to keep, et cetera. Uh, wouldn't the precedent just put, just make this all null and void? I, listen, I think it would be a very difficult case to make uh, for this. It also depends on what the nature of the documents is. Uh, because, you know, when the Washington Post reported that they involved nuclear weapons you know the speculation just went crazy it's just you know the, the president is selling the nation's nuclear secrets to somebody or it's just it, it was it was crazy speculation um, but we don't know what that's about uh, we don't know what any of these documents are about and a number of people have pointed out uh, and that Barack Obama himself said during the Hillary Clinton affair says you know there's classified and then there's classified there's really top secret, top secret stuff. And then there's stuff they call top secret, uh, but that you can actually probably find through public sources. So it depends on how critical this information that Trump took actually is, whether it actually did pose a damage to national security to have it in a box next to the beach chairs at Mar-a-Lago, or whether it's really not that big a deal. So I think a prosecution 
is going to depend on the actual facts of the case, which unfortunately we don't know. Now. Right. Now, um, as my brain goes through this, because I hate to be a conspiracy theorist, but after a while, you kind of have to start scratching your head going, wait a minute, what's going on here? Uh, because we know that back when Bill uh, Clinton, when he left office, Judicial Watch sued the National Archives uh, to try to get some audio tapes that he stored in the White House. And we found out through that through that lawsuit that they were stored in his sock drawer, hardly, uh, <laughs> hardly secure. But uh, the ruling, which happened to be Judge Amy Berman, Berman Jackson, was the judge who ruled on this, said that there's no provision in the Presidential Records Act to force the National Archives to seize records from a former president. Uh, And she said, since the president is completely entrusted with the management and even the disposal of presidential records during his time in office, it would be difficult for this court to conclude that Congress intended that he would have less authority to do what he pleases with what he considers to be his personal records. So why in the case of Trump do we have to seize it, find out what it is before we can decide whether they should seize it? Well, um, I agree that the Clinton records case, Clinton had spoken on, um, uh, had recorded conversations with the historian Taylor Branch and uh, kept copies of these things uh, in his in his uh, sock drawer, as you said. Um, I think there are a couple of, of uh, things to consider. The National Archives wasn't trying to get it from Clinton. They weren't pressing to get it from Clinton, and they are pushing against Trump. Now, whatever reason that is, I don't know. Um, also, the the other thing is, the the National Archives got this ball rolling, uh, but now there appears to be this Justice Department investigation into whether there's classified material um, in the Trump papers. So, uh, and, and as a matter of fact, there they've they've um, listed a bunch of cases um, in which it's entirely possible they could uh, prosecute Trump, even if there weren't any classified. Material. So, I mean, the, the, the there there are people here who just want to get Trump. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. Any any way they can, there is an investigation going on into January 6th. You know, we found out that Pat Cipollone and others had testified before the grand jury um, investigating January 6th. So there is that investigation. But now, parallel to that or maybe intersecting with it at some point, I don't know, uh, is this grand jury investigation into the documents. Yeah, you you have another piece on the in the Washington Examiner called a classic anti-Trump frenzy, and it's a really great read. If anybody, I, I really highly suggest people read this because you really lay out, you know, how here we go again. You know, it's the same thing, the same playbook that the Democrats use time after time after time to get their political opponents. And Trump, they really went into overdrive on. You know, when Trump left his last day in office, he ordered some documents to be declassified after he left the White House. Those documents were blocked by the DOJ from being declassified. They've sat on that. Could there be, if my conspiracy hat, my tinfoil hat goes on and I say, huh, I wonder if Trump has some papers relating to Russia collusion uh, that he knows would vindicate him, that he knows maybe wouldn't be around, or some of these declassified papers that the deep state doesn't want out that, hey, if we get our hands on them because we think he has copies, they just disappear. Here's one of the points that was in that piece. Um, and that is um, there were many, many fights over classified documents during Trump's time in office, and they were all about the uh, Russia affair. Uh, 
And remember the Nunes memo came out in, in uh, 2018, and it was the memo that told us that the FBI had actually used the Steele dossier, took it to the secret FISA court, used it as evidence to get the uh, wiretap warrant for, uh, for Carter Page. That stuff was classified. Nunes had found it out. Trump declassified it because he wanted it to be public. And then the next year, 2019, he ordered William Barr, who was the attorney general at the time, to give him broad declassification authority to declassify all the documents in the Trump-Russia matter. Now, some of them were declassified. Others were not. Over the fierce resistance of a lot of people in the law enforcement and intelligence communities. Even before the Nunes memo was released, they said, oh, this is terrible. It'll damage national security. It'll endanger lives. Well, it did none of that. It simply showed that the FBI had engaged in misconduct in the in the uh, Russia affair. Trump always <laughs> excuse me, wanted more documents released in the Russia matter. He was successful with some. He was not successful with others. So here's here's the thing. We don't know what the documents are at issue in Mar-a-Lago raid, but we do know Trump, and we know his interests, and we know his obsessions, and he was obsessed with Russia documents. I would not be surprised if Russia documents play some role in all this uh, because he has always believed, and he's right, that the, the, the more documents are released, the more they tended to exonerate him. And that's been his abiding interest, and it still is abiding interest. You listen to any of his campaign speeches now. He talks about the Russia, 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 Russia hoax a lot. He still talks about it, yeah. and he's still interested in it. Yeah, and I and I, I can't blame him, but I wonder if those if now if they do have them now, if they just disappear. And Trump's like, wait a minute, not everything's here. And they'll they're like, no, we gave you everything back, and they just disappear, and that's what they want. Very quickly, one more question: If the affidavit does contain sensitive information, and it's all re- and they are allowed to redact, are we going to get anything anyway? Is it worth it? Uh, well, if if it were released in redacted form, it could be one of those things where you get a piece of paper and it's got three huge black boxes on it and you don't see anything. Um, so, it, you know, I suppose they could release it in that redacted form. I just don't expect it to be released at all and certainly not uh, released in any form where we learn anything useful. That's do, do we learn anything useful today? My guess is no. No. Yeah. And and the deep state rolls on and they just keep smearing Trump. Byron York, thank you so much. I appreciate you joining us and explaining this and laying here. it all out for us. We'll see what happens today. Thank you. Thank you. Let's hear what you have to say. 866-408-7669. 866-408-7669. Uh, and Byron's piece, A Classic Anti-Trump Frenzy, Washington Examiner, really, really worth the read. It's not that long. It's a great piece. Your call's coming up on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. We should be winning, and we're not. And it, 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 I would just be beating my head against. Well, right on top of that, this Mar-a-Lago story, which might be the biggest story since 9/11. If this thing turns out to be substantial, which I suspect that it will, 
every Republican's going to have to say, well, what, what did you say about this? This is what you said. Do you, you still believe that? And you stand with Donald Trump because they got to say to stand with Donald Trump because if they don't, they lose a substantial part of their base. It's a very tricky issue for them. Yeah, that is James Carville discussing uh, the the midterms, really. And we're going to go into that a little bit, too, uh, coming up as well. But saying, yeah, this could be the biggest story since 9-11. This is what the left does, to Byron's point, you know, and his piece, The Classic Anti-Trump Frenzy. This is what they do. They just gin up all this excitement, and the base swallows it whole. They love it. They feed on it. They can't get enough of it. And what does it do? It slowly but surely damages Trump. And that's what it's about. You know, if they don't release this affidavit, this is going to go on forever and ever and ever because they don't want Trump to run They're And, and they're not going to release it. So we're not going to know what the, uh, the what, you know, they got in the boxes. What are they looking into? Because they don't want that out there. They want it to be speculation, which is why there are slow leaks. If you notice the, the leaking started. Right. The leaking started with with uh, with Trump. And because that's what we do, we have to we have to do the leaking. So and and it's the same places that leak the Washington Post. You know, it's it's all the the usual suspects that that do this. And, um, you know, Margot Cleveland has a piece in The Federalist and she talks about the raid and she talks about who may have been the one to leak this. And she goes into the history of the leaks, which I thought was so enlightening because I didn't realize how many of them there were. But she says that we should watch the archivist of the United States, David Ferrio, Ferrero, um, who recently retired uh, because he noted that um, he said they he remembered watching the Trumps leave the White House and getting off the helicopter and someone carrying a white banker box. And I said to myself, what the hell's in that box? So he had an interest and he wanted to know what was in the box. So it may have been him that tipped the um, the first domino about, huh, Trump has stuff at his, you know, his home. But we know that Trump was co- cooperating with the National Archives, had turned over 15 boxes to the National Archives already. Right. And was was court was coordinating with them and he was cooperating. But she goes into the history of the leaks that started back in February with the Washington Post. And that's what they do. That's what they do with Russia. They leak out damaging stuff to leak about. It's nuclear secrets. You know, okay, then why did they wait 18 months if it's nuclear, nuclear secrets that could be detrimental to the United States? It doesn't make any sense, but that's what they do. Drip, 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 drip in order to damage their political opponent. And it works. I'm Mary Walter. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade and just wanted to let you know if, you, um, if you're interested, I have a podcast. We do a podcast every Thursday night. So tonight, 7.15 Eastern Time. You can find it on YouTube. Just look for Mary Walter Radio. Just search on that. It'll pop up. Uh, also on Gitter. Also to look for Mary Walter Radio. 
Um, it should be there. Or if you can't find Mary Walter Radio, just look for Mary Walter because my ghetto, my my ghetto, my getter uh, name is actually really my name. It's Mary Walter, so uh, it'll it'll come right up in your search. I want to want to switch gears here just a little bit uh, because I think this is important, and uh, it's something that affects our kids, it affects all of us, adults, children as well, and it's about social media. And um, as I go through this, I want to know if you have stepped away because we from social media, especially after the pandemic, when so many people live their lives on social media. And and I'm also curious what you which social media outlets you partake in because I like I don't I don't partake in TikTok because I read the agreement and you you let them and Instagram too. They have ownership of your photos and your videos and all this other stuff. And I, I don't know, I didn't like it. So I am not on Instagram or TikTok because of those reasons. And now we're finding out that the Chinese are, you know, taking facial recognition from you and all this other stuff. Not that I'm naive enough to think that they're not going to do something similar on Facebook, et cetera, but at least that's owned by um, Americans for now anyway, until China buys it. And um, so I felt a little bit safer with that. And I I never post anything that I wouldn't want people to see, uh, knowing full well that things um, can go public very quickly. So, so I'm just curious where you are on the social media use. And I also want to know how you deal with your kids and screen time. I see so many kids sitting in strollers that have mommy's phone or have like a little baby iPad or whatever, whatever it happens to be. And I, I just don't think it's good I, I just don't. And maybe that's because, you know, I'm ancient and, and we didn't have those as children growing up. But I, you know, I also look at my nieces, my brother, you know, he raised his kids. None of them have TVs in their rooms. Never had it. There were, there was one computer not in their rooms. It was downstairs in a room that a lot of people walk through. That's where the computer was. So they could always see what their kids were doing. And when it came to phones, they had to be a certain age before they got a phone and they stood fast. I mean, they, they held the line and, uh, their kids, you know, they had to have the passwords to each one of their kids, phones, social media, that type of thing. So they could see what was going on in the phones and the kids knew it. They knew that every now and then mom and dad, while they were asleep, would just pick up their phone and go through it. Uh, and, and I think that sometimes that's something you have to do in order to keep your kids safe. 866-408-7669. Uh, Tom Holland plays Spider-Man. He's been playing Spider-Man since 2016. And he announced on social media that he was taking a break from social media. Now, um, he it, it, he said, and he the only reason he came back on social media was for, um, to, to plug a charity, but he said, hello and goodbye. I've been taking a break from social media for my mental health, but felt compelled to come on here and talk about, and he talks about this organization that he, that he's proud of their work and he wanted to give them a boost. And he said, love to you all. And let's get talking about mental health. He said that he finds Twitter and Instagram overstimulating and overwhelming. He said, I spiral when I read things about me online. Ultimately, it's very detrimental to my mental state. So I decided to take a step back and delete the apps. And he was only returning for that one, you know, message about this, this group that he finds um, very beneficial. And and I, you know, I noticed myself using, I used to use Facebook a lot. I, I use Facebook less now. I'm on Twitter more, but Twitter is such a cesspool. People, I'm telling you, one thing I've learned is that there are really a lot of very nasty, not nice people in the world. 
it, they must be very frustrated. I, I don't know what it is, but they say things to you that they would never say to your face, obviously, because you're not there and they don't know you. But that hurts your kids. See, and that's where I get concerned with kids on social media. This is where I think parents, I know it's hard, but parents have to have discussions with their kids. And I'm curious if you're having discussions with your kids, and if you are, um, how are you doing it? Are you limiting screen time? If so, how are you limiting it? Do you, is there any guidance? You know, there's a piece that I found that talks about how, you know, and it's, it's um, out of Australia. And they said they did a study at Edith Cohen University in Australia in June Deloop. They have the best names for towns, June Deloop. And they said that modern parents can't agree on how to regulate their kids' use of smartphones and tablets because it's new. Grandma and grandpa never had to deal with it. My parents did it with TV. We had no TVs in our room. We had one TV in the main room of the house, and that was it. And if you couldn't agree on a show that you wanted to watch, my, my mother would just say, she don't plug, if we started fighting, she'd unplug the TV and tell us to go outside, and that was that. You know, so it's different. It's a new world. It's, it's uncharted territory. The authors of the study say that most millennial parents are making it up as they go when it comes to their kids' digital media habits. Children and teens' mobile use is a significant source of family arguments, according to the study. 75% of those surveyed report con conflict, tension, and family disagreements over cell phone use. At least one in five parents also reported a lack of exercise. Their kids aren't exercising. Difficulties completing tasks, excessive gaming, sleep problems, and social withdrawal in connection with their children's mobile media habits. I think those are all legit concerns. 866-408-7669. Let's go to Joseph in Chicago. Joseph, you're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Hi. I'm doing good. Go ahead. All right, so, yeah, just, you know, what was it? No, Tuesday, my stepson uh, started kindergarten and didn't even tell me or his mother that they were going to be issued iPads, like not even just, you know, old ones, like brand new, biggest one they can get, and they're coming home at kin in kindergarten. They, they, should, they should be more focused on learning all their other stuff than, than being on an iPad all day. Is that they, apparently everything is going to be on that now, which understandably we're going to a new age and time where people, well, everything's going digital. But at, at this age, these kids should be more focused on, you know, the fundamentals of, of early childhood education and not learning how to use an iPad and, or any electronics for that matter at five, six years old. So let me ask you, do you have any control? Like, can you, can you keep them from going to other things that maybe they shouldn't be going to, or just wandering around and, and stumbling into things that they shouldn't be seeing? Do you have any control over it? This school, I, I looked through it. There is not one, there's not, there's nothing there stopping them from going to any website. I, I connected it to my Wi-Fi at home and I was able to go to freaking any, any website I wanted. It, there's no restrictions. There's no none. I mean, even on my my job, my work phone, you know, it has a bunch of restrictions. You you can't even do, it's not even like the base model. But at school, you would think they would have a multiple hundreds of restrictions for everything. But no, you can just do anything you want on it. And did you complain to the school? What did they say? No, we're waiting for the uh, uh, first uh, PTA conference to say, you know, what, why isn't, why isn't, is there no restrictions on any of these? 
iPads, you know, and my, you know, also my, my uh, fiance is uh, a nanny and the daughter that she watches goes to the same school, same class. And, you know, they're, they're all getting exposed to stuff that, you know, they shouldn't. It's the same thing. Her yeah. Well, you, you know, are, you can, excuse me for interrupting, but I want to get to some other calls. You can restrict, you can go on there and put like a, a net nanny on there. You just, you can look online how to do it. And you as a parent, I think if that's what you want, I think you should have the right to do that. And I wouldn't even tell the school. I probably just put it on there myself, but that's just me. But um, that may be something you want to look into some kind of, some kind of net nanny to be able to restrict uh, what your kid is looking at. That's insane. Joseph, thank you so much. I appreciate that call. I appreciate you joining me. Uh, let's go to Georgia. KT, you're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Hey, Mary. How are you? I'm doing great. So do you have these discussions with your kids? Yeah, we do every night. Um, we restrict him from Facebook. Uh, we also uh, let him be on Instagram, but my wife is his friend just to make sure that she can see everything that he's putting up. We have his passwords and we have basically full control of his phone. How old is he? How old is he? He's 14. So did, did he put up, is there some kind of fight? Is there a struggle with this? Because I can imagine kids get to a certain age and they just like, they don't want mom and dad reading their diary. They probably don't want mom and dad looking at what they're posting on social media. He knows, but he understands that. And I'm sure he feels that way. But he also knows that it's an if, uh, it's an either or, ones and zeros. You either put up with the restrictions or you have nothing. Just like life, you put up with the restrictions or you have no phone. I'll get him a flip phone if I need to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he needs to have a phone so he can be in touch with us, but that's about it. The rest of it is is superfluous. I was listening to uh, Joe Rogan this morning, and he was talking about you. He made a good point. You can't protect your kids from everything. So what you do is you let them do what they're going to do, and then at night you deprogram it. Now, we don't have TikTok um, because I actually heard him read the terms of service. Uh, we don't. So that's not allowed on any of our phones because I don't want that to have access to my home network. Yeah. And um, so with all that other stuff, like I say, you just sit down. It's just like even if there were no phones, we sit down at the end of the day. We talk about school. We talk about what he did. And any of the, the woke BS and all that other stuff that comes up, we deprogram that stuff every night. That's what the dinner table's for. And I think more people need to make sure they're doing that. At the end of the day, you can get exasperated about the way the world is going and we're living in clown world and all this stuff. But you sit down at the dinner table at the end of the day and you deprogram it. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up. I, I, Katie, I love the way you parent. I think it's great. It's so old school, but it's necessary and it's needed. And I think that that's wonderful. You're going to raise good kids. Uh, more maybe get to it later, but um, there is a study that shows that only three meals for the average American family, only, they only have three meals together during the week. That whole nighttime dinner table, sit down, talk with your kids is gone. That is gone. We don't have time. Kids have practice. They have this, they have that. We had all that as kids too, but yet that was never an option in our home when we were kids to not have that dinner. And I think it's so important because he's right. This is when you sit down and you talk to your kids about how was your day and all this other stuff. And as parents, it's just, you get to know your kids when you're passing like shadows in, in the night. I just don't think that that's healthy. For, for family and for the kids, for anybody involved. 866-408-7669, talking about your kids and screen time and youth and screen time as well. And there's a move. You see people leaving social media. Uh, and, and I think because they just need to, you know, 
decompress. You need to take a breath. I'm curious how you're handling it. I'll get your calls coming up on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. I'm Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade. We're talking about social media and a study that came out of Australia that found that um, millennials, young parents, they're, uh, they have an inability, they're having a problem handling their kids' screen time. And it's leading to a lot of arguments and a lot of family tension. And also, listen to this, out of London, we find that the modern person leaves behind an online trail, your online digital footprint that's there long after you're dead. 9,828 photos, 10,811 social media posts, and 126 emails over your uh, email addresses over your life. Now, I don't come close to 126 email addresses over my entire life. Uh, The average person shares over a third of their life online. It's crazy. The average adult uh, per year, they, here you go, 276 posts on Instagram, 170 on Facebook, 141 tweets during a year. So in your lifetime, <clears throat> excuse me, that's 17,369 posts on Instagram, 10,680 posts on Facebook, and 8,911 tweets over the average lifetime. Think about that. 866-408-7669. How are you handling all of this with you and with your children? Uh, Nicole on Long Island listening on WRCN. Hi, Nicole. You're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi, Mary. How are you today? I'm doing just great. So does that shock you how much of your digital footprint there is out there for your life? Uh, so here's what I wanted to ask you. Would you mind if I comment on two of the things that you're referring to, parenting and social media? Of course. Go ahead. Okay, so first of all, you're dead on. You're 100% correct. I am in a business where in order for me to excel, I should be on social media. I refuse to do it. I refuse Facebook. And you're right. If you want to be a private person and you don't want everyone to know what you're doing, where you're going, it's best that you're not on it. I actually had a situation where I was able to um, detect what a certain person was doing, every move that they made. I wasn't a cyber stalker, but I knew everything she was doing. And from that, I said, I'm not going to ever go on social media. And that's just my take on it. I think it's ridiculous. You're right. China's buying everything. Eventually, they'll buy Facebook. But um, you're right on that. The other thing I wanted to mention was parenting. You're, you're, you're saying that you're old school. You're not old school. You're smart school. Um, the parents of today that are 25, the millennium parents that have a 3-year-old, their parents are in their 40s, so their parents are probably in their 60s. And so the great-grandparents are the ones that really have it together. And this is where it stems from. They haven't gotten good parenting. Unfortunately, they don't know any better, these parents. So they, they're going as they, as they for the day, okay, let me give my kid a radio or a TV and just watch it. That's not parenting. And so what do you, how, do we, how do we address them? What do we say to them? They'll get insulted. I don't know, maybe it's socially not correct to even tell them. Why is your ch- your child in a stroller, he has an iPad, and he's totally disregarding his surroundings? How is he going to grow up in the world? 
you know, and the also also the parents on their phones all the time, like at the grocery store, wherever they happen to be, totally ignoring their children. The kid, they're not interacting with their kids at all. And and look, I get it. Mom's working, dad's working. You know, sometimes working more than one job. I, I understand that it's hard. I totally get it. But I think each generation has a parenting challenge as things change. It's different than it was for your parents, and I think it gets more and more complicated. But if you have kids, I don't know, pay attention to them. I'm you know, not a parent, I think the bar... so maybe I don't have a, I don't have a vo- I shouldn't have a voice, but I do know that um, I was raised old school, as yeah. you said before, and I, I have, um, I have a completely different take on the way parents today are raising their children. And I guess I was lucky that I don't have children. I don't know. Yeah, well, Nicole, I don't, I, I, you know, I, I agree with you. I got to run, but thank you so much. I appreciate you so much for your call. Drive carefully. I want to get uh, Hillary in Jacksonville on WOKV here on Hillary. We have about a minute. Hi. Hi. So I actually just wanted to kind of throw out there. I use Google link for my daughter. She's 12. My ex-husband bought her a phone kind of against my wishes. And I can lock, you know, I lock her phone after a certain time at night and I can limit the time frame. I can limit the apps and the websites just to get approval before she gets on any website. And I was just saying, like, the irony behind all of it is that my ex-husband, she spent a week there over the summer, gave her a tablet that didn't have parental controls. And then he turned around and got in trouble at work because she was on sites she wasn't supposed to be on. And it was a little bit of a dose of karma for my ex-husband because I'm like, now you know what I have dealt with with her and social media or being on the phone. Yeah, it's hard. So what is the pro? What is the program that you use again? Maybe somebody's listening can can just quick remember or jot it down. It's actually Google Link through Gmail. If you create- all right, we gotta go. Uh, okay, great. Google Link through Gmail. That is. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Mary Walter sitting in the seat for Brian Kilmeade. So excited to, to be with you. The number is 866-408-7669 if you'd like to join me on any of the things that we, we talk about. Joining us now is Tom Homan. He is a Fox News contributor. He's also an Immigration Reform Law Institute senior fellow and the former acting director of Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Tom, thank you for joining me on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Thanks for having me. There, let's, we have to talk, obviously, about our southern border and what's happening. And I think what has really um, been so interesting and just so fascinating to watch is what's happening with Arizona and Texas, and in Texas more notably, shipping the people who come across the border to Washington, D.C. or New York City. These people say that's where they want to go. And the reactions from the mayors in both of those two places that this, this is horrible. This is a terrible thing to do. Muriel Bowser wants the National Guard. When they're getting a couple thousand compared to the numbers coming across our southern border. Uh, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about those numbers. We just set another record, did we not, for illegal crossings at our southern border? Yeah, we did. We had over two million this fiscal year, uh, and we got two months to go before reporting for the month of August and September to go. So I'm guessing it'll be at 2.3, 2.4 million, which, of course, blows last year's historic number. Last year was was an historic number at 1.7. 
So we're going to blow that away by at least a half a million, um, which shows administration has, hasn't done a damn thing to slow the flow. And when it comes to the mayors, New York City and Washington, D.C., it, it just it's insulting, you know, because when the Biden administration was flying plane loads of people in the middle of the night to those cities, they didn't say a word. But when a Republican governor does it, all of a sudden it's an issue. If they want these buses to stop coming, get rid of your sanctuary city policies, because they're coming to your city anyways. New York City, what they won't admit is they rank third in the nation for illegal alien population. Why is that? Because they're sanctuary city. In New York, an illegal alien go there and get a job. He can, uh, he can get a driver's license. They just try to pass laws so they can vote. And they, they also have a legal defense fund there where they'll give illegal aliens money to help them fight their immigration case. So who the hell wouldn't go to New York? So they're coming to New York anyways. They're coming to D.C. anyway for their sanctuary city. That's where a lot of these people go. So, you know, it's, it's all politics to them, either a sanctuary or not. But if they want these buses to stop coming and their sanctuary city policies and call the president and tell them to secure the border. You know, we're averaging, if you're looking at your numbers, 1.7 last year, 2.3 this year, uh, you're looking at 4 million people coming into this country uh, uh, in, in the span of two years of the Biden presidency. If we keep this up, you're talking about 8 million people in four years. How can we sustain this? And what's it going to look like in four years? What does this do to us economically? Well, people need to understand, first of all, it'd be very hard to remove these people. They're right. not going anywhere. Right. Because what this administration has done People need to understand the reason they're not detaining them is for uh, two simple reasons. Uh, the the immigration court data, first of all, a majority of people come to Southern border, of course, Central American. The immigration court data clearly shows that nearly nine out of ten Central Americans who claim asylum at the border never get relief from U.S. courts because they either don't show up in court or they don't qualify. So what happens to that nine out of ten that lose their case? Well, according to the Homeland Security Lifecycle Report, the secretary's very own report over the last decade, it shows if you get an order removal and you're not in detention, you're not being detained. If you're a child, you, you actually leave 3% of the time. If you're a family unit, you leave 6% of the time. If you're a single adult, you only leave 18% of the time. The secretary has the same data. I'm just reading out to you. So they, and, and that report also says if you're detained and you get a final order removal, you're removed 99% of the time. That is the reason they're not detaining them, because they know most will lose their case. So they're going to prevent them from being removed by two things, not detaining them, and they've already decapitated ICE. The secretary said being in the country illegally on its own is not enough for ICE to make an arrest. So this administration has made sure not only open the borders, but make sure they'll never leave. So what's that going to do to this country? It's already, it's, already, it's already happening. Schools are being overcrowded. These children don't speak English. It slows all instruction of the schools down, so it's going to hurt U.S. citizen children. Trauma centers are, 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 are overburdened. Uh, they're going bankrupt because, again, by law, they have to treat people who have no insurance. So, you know, a large influx of illegal immigrants in one area is going to hurt the trauma centers, overcrowd the social services system. That's why New York's crying. They're already overburdening New York uh, City uh, social uh, service system, and, and it's going to drive wages down uh, in an economy that's already terrible. In, 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 and let me give you an example of that. The, 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 I just had a roof put on my house. True story. I just had a roof put on my house a little over a year ago. I had to call five different companies before I found a company that would guarantee me a legal workforce. Uh, 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 one, one company showed up as a father and a son. They used to employ 20 U.S. citizens workers. He had to lay off 20 U.S. citizen workers because he couldn't compete 
with all these other companies that are hiring illegal aliens. And he couldn't compete with them because they're paying them, you know, half what he was paying U.S. citizens again is rough. So 20 U.S. citizens get laid off. This happens thousands of times across the country. So it's going to help. It's going to hurt wages. It's going to hurt U.S. workers. So there's a lot of uh, negative to this uh, open border crisis. Okay, so my question from there is why? How does this benefit Democrats? What's the game plan here? Because they, they play the long game. I give them a lot of credit for that. They play the long game. Where where are they winning with this strategy down the road? They truly believe that they're going to uh, reap political benefits from open borders. And there's a couple ways they do that. First of all, when, when, when President Biden uh, signed over 90 executive orders getting rid of all Trump's border policies, which I helped create, he also overturned the Trump census rule, which means these millions of people will be counted the next census, mostly in sanctuary cities. And what does that do? That's going to result in more seats in the House for Democrats. They know that. That's why you overturn Trump. Why else would you overturn the, the census rule? They want these people counted because it's going to equal Democrat seats in the House. And they also think they're future Democratic voters. That's why they push for amnesty. They want to push for amnesty and later on for U.S. citizenship. That's the, and people say, oh, Holman, that's a replacement theory. Call it what you want. There's no other reason to open the border because there's no downside in a secure border. For instance, they want to say right now what they're doing is humane, more humane than President Trump. Really? Because since Joe Biden became president, there's been over 1,200 migrant deaths on U.S. soil. That has never happened in the history of this nation. 12, 12 as to the other day, 1,217 migrants have died on U.S. soil. Well, you haven't heard a damn word about it. We got over 100,000 Americans dying from opioid overdoses. DEA says 95% of the fentanyl is coming across the southwest border because the border is wide open. Because 70% of border agents aren't on the line. They're in facilities processing this humanitarian crisis. So don't tell me these policies are more humane. They're killing Americans. They're killing migrants. Under the Trump administration, when illegal immigration was at a 40-year low, how many women didn't get sexually assaulted by the cartels? How many children didn't die crossing the border? How many migrants didn't die crossing the border? How many Americans didn't die from drug overdoses because fentanyl wasn't flowing across the border like it is today? President Trump's policies save lives. Joe Biden's policies are not humane. They're killing people. Yeah. Let's talk about crime, because the Immigration Reform Law Institute named America's most dangerous sanctuary cities, number one being New York. And then you have L.A., Chicago, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Minneapolis, Seattle, Wake County, North Carolina, Middlesex County, New Jersey and Portland, Oregon. I noticed D.C. is not on this list, which I thought was interesting. What what do you what are the um, the metrics that determine a dangerous city? How many criminal aliens are, uh, how many detainers are refused when ICE issues detainers? How many criminal aliens are arrested and released back in the community? It's, it's lack of work with, it, with the federal government, with, with ICE. And in Washington, D.C., if you were to expand that up to 15, you'd see Washington, D.C. in there. And look, Sanctuary City, I want to be clear on this, and, and Sanctuary Cities are sanctuary for criminals only. You get law enforcement professionals saying, we're a sanctuary city, so we want victims and witnesses of crime. To come forward to police, not worry because we're working with ICE. That is such a lie because ICE doesn't want to talk to the victim or, or witness. They want to talk to the guy that they locked up and put in a jail cell. ICE only wants access to a jail where the local law enforcement made the decision to lock somebody up because of the public safety threat. That's who ICE wants to talk to. And, and I would argue 
They say they're protecting witnesses and victims of crime. No, you're not, because you, when you release them, rather than turn them over to ICE, they're going to go back to the very same community in which they live, an immigrant community, and reoffend. That is based on that's real data. So do you think the victim and witness of the crime want the bad guy released back in the community? Of course they don't. You're not protecting victims and witnesses. The sanctuary city does is put the immigrant community at greater risk of crime because they're going to release that subject back in the community. Number two, it puts them at greater risk of ICE arrest because if ICE can't arrest the bad guy in the jail, they're going to go to the community and find them. And they may find others with them that weren't even on their radar that now need to be arrested. And it puts ICE officers at great danger. Rather than arrest that bad guy in the jail where you know he doesn't have weapons, now ICE has to go find him on his turf. We has access who knows what. Yeah. And finally, I'll say this. I dare any politician in the sanctuary city to go to the immigrant community and ask them one simple question. Would you rather have ICE operating in your jail or in your community? They're going to say in the jail because, look, immigrant communities, even though some are here illegally and they commit a crime doing that, most of them are law-abiding after they get here, so they don't want pedophiles in their neighborhood either. They don't want anybody convicted of DUI five times in their neighborhood either. They don't want these criminals in their neighborhood. So when these politicians say they're protecting the immigrant community, they're lying. Yeah, it's they're very racist policies, and that's something I've always said because of the communities that these people go to is where people speak their language, where they maybe even know people, you know, uh, so it's it's more familiar to them than another area. And also the nicer areas don't want them. They want them out of sight, out of mind. You know, they don't want them in their neighborhoods. You know, it's the not in, in my backyard attitude of what happens here. You know, you had said, and I only have like two minutes here, but you had said that uh, the, the long game for the Democrats is because – you know, they think they're going to get these people to vote for them. But we are proving right now and we're seeing right now that the Hispanic community doesn't share the same values as the Democrat Party. And you're seeing them move away from the Democrat Party towards the Republican Party. So do they not see that or do they just think it's an anomaly? Because it seems to me as if that game isn't going to work for them. No, I think between you and what you just said, I think they miscalculated this whole thing. I think it's going to hurt them in the long run. At least, at least I hope it does. Uh, this is, there's no other reason for that border up. Uh, it, it, like I said, the census itself will, will, will increase uh, House seats for the Dems. That's right. not going to change. They're, 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 they're regarding, I don't care what the opinion is on a migrant, what he intends to do in the future, they're still going to be counting the census. That's already enough damage as it is. I think this border issue is going to be a huge issue for the midterms. I think a majority of Americans believe there's an invasion on the southern border, and they're exactly right. This is just not an immigration issue anymore. It's a public safety crisis. It's a public health crisis. And it's a national security crisis. Border Patrol's arrested 66 people in FBI screening database. They've arrested 66. We've got 900,000 gotaways since Joe Biden became president. How many of them are known inspector terrorists that got in this country? This ought to scare every American. It scares me, and I've been doing this for 35 years. Yeah, this and the numbers that you you've given me, you know, four million in two years is just absolutely crazy. And we didn't even get, we don't have time to, we didn't even get to the fentanyl that's coming across the border, which is insane as well. And if I have one more Twitter warrior say, yes, but they're doing a good job because they're get, they're catching it, my head's gonna explode. They just don't understand or they don't want to understand what is happening. And Americans, uh, children are are dying from this fentanyl that's coming across this border. Well, Tom Homan, thank you for tirelessly. Con- Continuing to hammer this, you did a great job uh, when you were with the Trump administration, and uh, this is something that I can't imagine what it's like to see your life work uh, just be overturned and and just exploited in this way. I think it's terrible, but thank well, you so much. Let's put it this yes. way. In 2024, the right guy comes back. I'm coming back, and we'll fix it.
Good for all right. All right. I look forward to speaking to you then again about that. I hope look forward to talking to you again in a couple of years then on that. I uh, thank you so much, Tom Holman. Let's get your calls on this. What do you what do you want to say about it? I mean, do you see it in your neighborhoods? You've got two counties on this list than the most dangerous cities. Cities. You have two counties, Wake County, North Carolina, and Middlesex County, New Jersey. I mean, I know where Middlesex County, New Jersey is, and they've always had a a, a large immigration population, but so does uh, you know, so does uh, Union County. A lot of the counties, especially close, closer to New York, have large immigrant populations as well. And, um, I, I, you know, do you see it? I do. You know, every now and then, you know, you're like, mm, okay, here we go. And I had the same problem he did hiring someone who only employs legal immigrants. But I go, I jump through the hoops to do it, and it is more expensive. But I feel like I'm a hypocrite if I don't. 866-408-7669. 866-408-7669. I'm Mary Walter, and you're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade. We were just speaking with Tom Holman, who is the former acting director of ICE under President Trump. And he said, hey, Trump comes back. I'm coming back, too. But he gave us some incredible numbers at four million, approximately four million people coming into this country illegally in the first two years of the Biden administration. It's crazy. Two million, a million. I mean, it's it's just insane. So uh, I, I'm I'm just curious as as to what you think about this, and do you do you agree that the long game for the Democrats is that these people are eventually going to vote Democrat? That's what they're going to do. They're going to be so grateful they were allowed into the country by a Democrat. That's who they're going to vote for because they're not going back. They're never going back. They know once they get here, their kids are going to go into your kids' schools. You're going to be paying for them, right? Your taxes are going to go up however you fund your school system. That's going to cost more. You're paying more in services and hospitals, et cetera, and the, care, the quality of care. Of course, there's only so much money is going to go down for you. And I am curious if you're seeing it already. 866-408-7669. Let's go to Robert in Westchester listening on WABC from what the Immigration Law Reform Institute has named uh, the America's most dangerous sanctuary community, New York City. Robert, you're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi, congratulations, I guess. You're number one. <laughs> Good morning, Mary. This is a very complex problem. You know, they now... The left will not understand what's going on, and they will. And what you said before about not in my backyard is the key to the whole thing. As long as it's not in my backyard, which is what New York City people are screaming about now, they, it, it's if it doesn't affect them personally, personally, like shock tactics, they don't wake up because they live in this ideological world of airy-fairy things about the way things could be and kumbaya and all that stuff. People on the right that want to be self-sufficient, self-reliant, there are people on the left that want to be taken care of, and they think everybody should be taken care of. And in the yeah. middle, there's something, there's some, some balance. But as long as the people on the right are trying to convince the people on the left that they should think the way the people on the right think, mm-hmm. forget about it. It's not going to happen because their brain is wired differently. 
This has been proven scientifically. I've read research articles on it. They're not going to see things the same. The other thing is these people are getting phones when they come across the border. What do you think they're going to be talked about in, on those phones? Yeah, they're going to be calling their buddies. I, I, we've got to run. We're running out of time here. But you, you make an excellent point, and that goes to show that, in my book at least, you've got Governor Abbott in Texas thinking like a Democrat. And I've always said that Republicans need to learn from the Democrats, learn from the left on how to play the game on their level. And it looks like he's doing that. I'm Mary Walter. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. The fact that we have Border Patrol agents preventing people from enforcing law, preventing people from coming, but yeah, they, they can come through this gate and they could really come through anywhere, which is really the truth here. We have an open border and there's really no, really no two ways about it. And this administration does everything they can to encourage illegal immigration and to, to prevent, obstruct, thwart, any type of enforcement. That was former ICE acting director John Fahey. Uh, if you're just joining us, you missed a really good interview with Tom Homan, who was the retired acting ICE director uh, under President Trump. And we were talking about what's happening at our border. And the Immigration Reform Law Institute ranked America's most dangerous sanctuary communities. And these are sanctuary policies. These are cities that lead in crime, fear, and death. And, of course, New York, well, not of course, New York actually was number two in 2019, but it is now number one on this list, followed by L.A., Chicago, Philly, San Francisco, Minneapolis, Seattle, Wake County, North Carolina, and Middlesex County, New Jersey, and then uh, Portland, Oregon at number 10. He said if we went to number 15, we would see that um, if we went further down the list, Washington, D.C. is is down there. So it's starting to come into these big cities. They're starting to see it. Uh, I just don't think it's going to change the people who live in those big cities and their view of liberal policies. I could be wrong because I want to know, are you seeing it where you live? You know, and don't forget, these buses that are coming from Texas to New York or to um, Washington, D.C., when they go through, they have to stop along the line. You know, it's a long drive. And on some of these, the the migrants, the illegal immigrants on these buses, one of them wanted to stop in Chattanooga and told the bus driver, if you don't stop and let us off, we're calling the cops. They have zero fear. Zero fear. They know they can't be touched. They know that they're in the driver's seat when it comes to all of this. And they wanted off in Chattanooga. They had no intentions of going to New York. They wanted off in Chattanooga and they walked away from the bus. Never to be seen again. Nobody knows where they are. And are Democrats doing this because they think that down the road when all these people are made citizens, because you're never going to get rid of them, they're never going to be rounded up and sent back, never going to happen. And we'll never enforce the laws that should make it impossible for an illegal to live here. Will they vote Democrat or have the Democrats miscalculated on this one? 866-408-7669. Let's go to Andrea in uh, Virginia listening on WNIS. Andrea, you're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Hi. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. So we, are you seeing it where you live? Um, we've been seeing it before. Um, we have we have a, a pretty substantial population of illegals, um, but not like they have in Texas and in New York and the high crime areas. 
But my whole thing is this. We have a system in place for people to get um, come into the country legally. Uh, my grandmother in the early uh, teens came from Germany. Um, we had a girl that stayed with us from Hungary, and she had three years of trying to get citizenship, and she finally did. She was a registered nurse in Hungary. And there are certain occupations that we need here in this country, but our biggest problem, not climate change, not the economy, not the price of gas, none of this, everything, I think the biggest problem for our country right now is the, the illegal immigration, and, and that's because now we are paying for their education, we're paying for their transportation, we're paying for their housing, we're paying for their phones, we're paying for everything. And they're bringing across the drugs that are killing our people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I'm a big advocate of a wall. Uh, every other country in the world has a wall to keep people out. So uh, it, it's crazy. It's yeah, absolutely you make, crazy. You make you make two really good points, Andrea. Thank you so much. I appreciate you joining me. You make two really good points. Uh, I don't know if you saw the video on Fox, but, you know, Texas erected a big fence. Like, they put up this big fence and this big barrier, and it, because they've been crossing and going onto private Amer private property, American citizen private property. And when they come across, they discard garbage. There's clothing that's discarded. It, it's disgusting. If you've ever seen the garbage that is left behind when they come across, they dump a whole bunch of stuff, and it's on this person's private property property. So the Texas um, Border Patrol, I guess Texas National Guard, is now down on the border in certain areas, and they have this locked off, and they refuse to let these people in. Do you know that Border Patrol came, was called, and they unlocked the gate and let the people onto this person's private property in America? That's what the Biden administration is doing. It's, it's insane. It's disgusting. So private citizens are having their everything that they've worked for, their lives ruined, their property destroyed, and it's okay because we got to get more of them in. And you mentioned the drugs coming across the, the country. Uh, there's been enough fentanyl brought into this country to kill every American. Customs and Border Protection reported seizing 2,071 pounds of fentanyl in July. July alone, 60% more than the previous record, which was set in April, and more than triple the 640 pounds that were um, seized in June. So imagine how much is getting through that we miss, that we don't know about. Now, this was originally stopped by uh, President Trump because President Trump made an agreement with Xi Jinping to stop shipments to the U.S., but he never agreed to stop sending it to Mexico. So now the ingredients are shipped from China to Mexico, where the cartels process it all this into fentanyl, and then they just bring it across the border. But when Trump was president, the border was pretty pretty much shut down, and there was such there was just a trickle of people coming across. It wasn't as much of a problem. It was much easier to get to apprehend. Eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Ralph in Texas, you're on the Brian Kilmeade show. Hi, Ralph. Rob. Uh, oh, Rob. Hi, Rob. How are you doing today? Doing great. Go ahead. You're in Texas, so you're at the tip of the spear here. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, what I wanted to point out is uh, the cartels are making tons of money right now, and I can't quite wrap my head around why this administration is doing it, but uh, what I hear is from the people that we apprehend, Mexicans are paying about 10, 11 grand each to 
across. Central Americans are paying about approximately 15000 and it just goes up from there. So don't so you wonder where, they, where, where are they getting the money from? Uh, they've got a, a lot of them have a network. So whether they're their friends or family that's already here, they make an initial payment, and then they may they may break it up over two or three payments. But I'm also I've also heard that people are signing over the deeds of their property in their own countries to the organization because it's not it's not just the cartel that's on the border. It's throughout all of Latin America. And so they get told where to go, who to borrow money from, if they can't get it from friends and family here in the U.S. And that leads to a lot of the, you know, people being basically slaves here in the U.S. working because these networks also have a worker network once they get to their final destination. Right, and a lot of them apparently wear bracelets when they come across that they know who's with which cartel, and then they can can track them so they know, you know, they deliver them to a car on our side of the border, and, you know, they, they deliver them to the destination, and you're right, they wind up working off this debt forever, and they, when they get here, they find out that they can never really work off the debt, and so they work for the cartels for the rest of their lives, um, funding the cartel, and that's a great point. Why do we allow this? Why are we funding cartels just so that Democrats can get more more representation in the census and rule forever? Is that what the game is here? Because then they're going to have this problem. It doesn't make a lot of sense, Rob. Thank you for bringing that up. You know, so, okay, so the long game for Democrats is, yeah, well, these people are going to be here. We're going to make them citizens. And um, we also they also get counted in the census because we count persons, not citizens, in the census. Um, so they get counted, and there's more of them in sanctuary cities. So we get more representation, and then we can keep, you know, one-party rule forever and ever. But you still have this problem <laughs> that's going on. It's not going to go away, whether it's a Democrat or Republican. You still have this problem doesn't go anywhere. 866-408-7669. A lot of people want to get on. I'll take as many of your calls as I can. And they're coming up next on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis. Because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. I'm Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade. 866-408-7669. We're discussing immigration and record number of people coming across our border every single day. Month after month after month, we're breaking records. Year over year, breaking records. Biden on on course for uh, two, excuse me, uh, four million in in, uh, just Two years of his presidency, four million. Can you imagine if we get four million more in the next two years? Eight million here illegally. Children, single-aged men. We've got a lot of people on uh, watch lists being apprehended. But what's coming across the border that they're not apprehending? And I'm curious to see if you're seeing it where you live. Are you starting to see the effects of this? Uh, On WABC, Eric in Queens, New York, uh, again, the, the most dangerous sanctuary city in the country, New York, New York. Hi, Eric. You're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, first, I'll start off. Isn't it ironic what Trump ran on in 2016 seems to be the biggest problem here, you know, going to be eight years later in 2024? Yeah, that's um, true. The man has an incredible vision. But that being said, um, growing up in Queens, New York, I've been around illegal immigrants my entire life. 
Um, I've heard every single story you could imagine. I own a construction company. I've had hundreds of illegals work for me over the years because that's all I can seem to find to work. Um, despite what, what Mr. Holman said earlier, they are not cheap. I can tell you that. They are not cheap as people think they are. Um, a lot of them have their own construction companies. A lot of states allow illegal immigrants to open LLCs. So if somebody shows up to your house and you write a check to ABC Roofing Company, LLC, you're not going to question him if, he, if he's illegal or not because, gee, he has a registered company. He, in turn, takes that check to a check cashing place, and he'll pay his 2%, whatever it is, and they, they cash a check for him. So the check disappears. He's never paying taxes, and he's able to work. Um, that's one thing most people don't know. The other thing people don't know is we don't talk about how many people come here on visas and never go back. Yeah. New York City is filled with so a lot of so what happens is the ones who can't get visas, they take a plane to Mexico because every country in South America will give you a, a visa to Mexico. They'll take the plane to Mexico and then they have to encounter the cartels and as the earlier the gentleman said, they're paying ten, fifteen thousand dollars. Um I see a lot of these women in New York City, this is what people need to, to be alerted to on street corners. Hispanic women with babies on their back, selling bottles of water, selling fruit and, and junk on the street corners. Um, it's a very disturbing sight to see, to see a, a woman with a little baby on her back selling trinkets on the street corner. Those people are most likely working for the cartels to pay them back. And they're given false promises, as, as you probably know. The cartels tell them, yeah, 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 we'll get you over the border. You work for us for two years, and then we'll give you your citizenship. And people buy into this junk. Um, this happened in the 90s and 80s when I was a yeah. kid. You take the subways in New York City, and you see these Chinese people selling little trinkets on the train. So, but Eric, let me let me let me just because I have a lot of people who want to get on. Let me, let me just ask you a question here: Why do the people of New York keep voting for this stuff? Because it's an emotional issue. The Democrats keep it emotional. Like Mr. Yeah. Holman said, instead of us getting them in the jails, we have to now go knock on doors. So that's what Democrats want. They want the uh, Border Patrol coming into neighborhoods so people can see and yeah. say, oh, my God, they're taking away our neighbor. How, how dare they? they? It's just like with everything with Democrats. Keep it emotional. People, Democrats always think with their hearts, not with their brains. And, you know, here, here we gotcha. are. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. It's, it's emotional and, and they do operate on emotion. Eric, thank you so much. I appreciate your call. Let's, let's head to Albany. John listening on WGG. WGDJ. Sorry about that, John. I butchered that. Sorry. You're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. It's okay, Mary. The great uh, Brian Kilmeade is going to be here uh, right in Albany. So we're looking forward to it. Yes. Go ahead. What do you want to say? Well, Mary, I'm a, a retired uh, school superintendent and school principal. And uh, the New York state law is interesting that if you live in a district and pay taxes in a district, your children can attend school in that district free of charge. Uh, if, for example, you wanted your child to go to the next district, uh, you would probably have to pay tuition on top of your taxes for that student to go there. Illegals and homeless, according to the Commissioner of Education in New York State, just walk in the door. Uh, they don't have to have registration papers. They don't have to have shot records and things that other parents, uh, you know, uh, resident parents have to produce. And by by commissioner's decision, 
and by law, if you have a homeless or an illegal in your district, you have to take them in. No question. So it, it's interesting the difference between a legitimate citizen who lives in the district and somebody just walks in the door. Well, like Trump has said, and you pointed out a, a great example of it, as Trump has said, John, uh, you know, America last. That's the Biden policy. And these people keep putting up with this and they keep voting for the same thing over and over again. So I just don't feel sorry for them. You know, I just there's so many people now that I look at them like I, I tell my liberal friends when they complain, I go, well, you get the government you vote for. And that usually ends the conversation and they shut up because they know that they're complaining about something that they voted for. So, and, and why that would drive me crazy. If I were a parent, I would walk in and say, I'm sorry, I don't have vaccine records. No, nope, sorry. I don't have anything, but you got to take them. Here you go. You can just assume we're in the country illegally. There you go. Uh, Mary on WABC in New Jersey. Mary, you're on the Brian Kilmeade show. Hi. Hello. Hi. Yes. I just want to when this situation is driving me crazy because I worked for immigration for 20 years in New York, uh, adjusting people to permanent resident status. And um, what uh, in 2010, while I was still there, Mayorkas was under uh, investigation by Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa. Um, His philosophy was find your way to yes. He didn't care what kind of, um, you know, uh, what your situation was. They they just want you to prove cases. And um, he's also been uh, complicit with um, Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, to open up this um, Darien Gap in Panama, which funnels the um, illegals um, more rapidly um, through Panama so they can catch a boat and get up to Mexico and walk across the border sooner. You know, so let me ask you, since you, wor- since you worked in there, and I don't have a lot of time here, um, since you've worked for, for the, the enforcement, why do you think this is the Democrats? Why, why are the Democrats doing this? I think stri- it's strictly uh, Cloward Piven. They would like us to be a, a Marxist society, and the more, more they can break down every system we have, the more uh, we will be desperate for a complete takeover. You know, I, I'm glad you, glad you brought that up. I've got to run, but thank you. I didn't think about Cloward Piven. Look it up, the Cloward Piven strategy. They were two professors from Columbia University back in, I think, the 60s, and it was about crashing the social network in this country, just put it under so much strain that the government has to come in and, you know, enact all these laws to save us, you know, from a situation that they created, and it ushers in an authoritarian uh, socialist rule. So um, Cloward Cloward Piven is the strategy. I'm Mary Walter. You're listening to The Bryden Kilmeade Show. Live from the Fox News radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox & Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. I'm Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade. Wow, big news yesterday regarding COVID and the CDC um, and uh, changing some of their um, their guidelines. Let's discuss it with Carol Markowitz. She's a po- columnist for the New York Post. You can find her on Twitter at Carol, K-A-R-O-L. Wow, what a great Twitter handle. Uh, and she has a piece out called Too Little Too Late, Disband the CDC Now. Carol, thank you for joining me on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi, Mary. Thanks for having me. Well, how did you get Carol? K-A-R-O-L. That's so cool. 
You know, I, it was back in the days when you could like email Twitter and just be like, hey, the person who has at Carol is not using it. Can you give it to me? And they were like, sure, here. You know, <laughs> so those days are gone. <laughs> it's now like you cannot even, you know, like, oh, somebody has threatened to murder me. Can you work on this? And they're like, we will return to you in like four to six days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then, then you never hear from them. So you right. called it disband. Like, this... We have found that this murder threat is not a big deal. Yes, exactly. You know, it doesn't violate our terms of service. Um, so you, you talk about disbanding the CDC now, but before yeah. we go there, I want to mm-hmm. talk about the changes that they came out with. Now, one of the things they came out and said, uh, the White House COVID-19s are Ash- Ashish Jha admitted that mm-hmm. the social distancing thing, six feet, six feet, you know, um, it yeah. was, 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 you know, that was sacrosanct because in there, I saw all of these things that, you know, people were posting about when you sneeze, how far the droplets go. And that's why, and it could yeah, go yeah. over, all nonsense. Uh-huh. it could go over the shelves in the grocery store and get someone in the aisle next to me, which is why right. I had to wear a mask in the store and all this other craziness. And he's now mm-hmm. acknowledged that that was the not, that was not the most accurate way to go about preventing the spread of the virus. Instead, he said, it's about the quality of air that you're breathing. Um, so basically they made it up according to Dr. Scott Gottlieb. They completely made it up. And I've been I've been writing about that and talking about it for a long time. Where did they come up with six feet? Have they ever explained that? I mean, it literally came from old flu studies. And those studies are not even that accurate. And they're just not it was a completely fabricated number. The thing is that your droplets can go over to the next aisle in the supermarket. It doesn't matter if you're fifty feet away. It, they, it, COVID travels on air particles. So your mask is completely irrelevant. And the mask that the person's wearing is also completely irrelevant because if you're breathing air, and I swear my 12-year-old daughter was the one who like was like, wait, if you're breathing and COVID travels on air, doesn't that mean you can get it can travel through the mask at any point? And it's like, obviously, yes, that's what it is. That if COVID is traveling on air and you're breathing air and the air is getting through your mask, so is COVID. Yeah, and can I ask another question then, again, since we're being honest, finally being honest, because I feel like I am finally, in the middle right? of the yeah. biggest, mm-hmm. I, I feel like I'm in the middle of the biggest I told you so in history right now. And I am doing yeah, a but vi- we're not even doing that, right? Like, I feel like we should be I told you so all over the place. Okay, well, I am, so I don't know about you, but I am. Good. And I'm enjoying <laughs> every minute of it. The the plexiglass that some places still have, <laughs> COVID yeah. can travel over, around, and under plexiglass, Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, COVID is not aware that we put up plexiglass. And there was a study actually, and this was out in like, I think early 2021. So this isn't new, um, that showed that the plexiglass actually might be worse for COVID because it's <laughs> trapping the particles and you're rebreathing them. Uh, it's just, it's unbelievable the dumb things that we did uh, to fight COVID and none of them worked. And we just continued to do them. Or not we, but they, they continued to force us to do them. And we did, uh, and we had no other choice. And it's really sad and pathetic that we can't face reality even today. No, and the people who live and breathe by the sainted Dr. Fauci will tell you, but, you know, we we didn't know what was happening. It was really, you know, we had to make this. We, we, yeah. we didn't know. And so rather than say we don't know, was it better in a way, and I'm going to play devil's advocate here, was it better to say, okay, we're going to do this, 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 and this to make people feel like they're in control as opposed to saying we don't know and driving everybody into sheer panic? No, I really don't think so, especially where vaccines are concerned. Because, look, I, I wanted the vaccines to work. I wanted that. I wanted when they came out, I was like, great, this is amazing. None of us are ever going to get COVID again. Fantastic. I believed. And then when it was clear that that was not the case, 
we, uh, you know, I faced reality when it, when th- that reality hit. When I saw that people got vaccinated and still got COVID at a frequent basis, I realized that the, that the vaccines don't stop transmission. But these vaccine mandates continued even until today. There's today mandates in New York City and other cities around the country where you can't be a teacher or you can't come into a school at all um, or a lot of other jobs that you can't do unless you've been vaccinated, even though we now know that it's not now. We've known for quite a while that these vaccines do not stop transmission. And so the latest CDC update says that we should not be differentiating between vaccinated and unvaccinated people because you could still transmit COVID even when vaccinated. So nice of them to notice that in 2022, but, you know, most of us have known this for quite some time. Um, And all the people that lost their jobs cannot just simply get those jobs back and they're owed something. And it's really um, just sad and pathetic that these cities continue to do this, even with this updated CDC guidance. Right. And those people who lost their jobs have no recourse, right? They, they, they can't no. sue anybody. There's nobody they can sue. So, you know, a well, so sorry. Right, exactly. And the thing is that we, those of us who didn't have to work in those early COVID days, you know, March, April, May, June, 2020, and the people who did work and they got COVID and then they were like, I don't want to get vaccinated because I've already had COVID. I had, you know, the original strain. And that was a completely plausible thing to say because, you know, if you had the flu, you don't get the flu vaccine. But they were told, no, you must get the vaccine, even if even if you've had COVID before. Um, and so, no, they have nobody that they could turn to now and say, I was right. I was right. I mean, the, the, I told you so yeah. for them is very empty because they don't get their jobs back. I'm going to start a club for those of us who want to say, I told you so. Um, one, of the, <laughs> one of the changes announced yesterday was a restructuring of uh, CDC because the CDC director came out on the heels of changing the guidelines. Dr. Rochelle Rolinsky came out and talked about changes that are going to be happening Mm -hmm. at at the CDC because of this. And they're they're going to have staff changes because if you rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic, that will make everything better. And um, they're also going to speed up data releases and things like that. I just want you to hear what she had to say in January of this year compared to what she said yesterday. This is hard. We have ever-evolving science with an ever-evolving variant, um, and my job is to provide updated guidance in the context of rapidly rising cases. And that is what we've done, and I'm here to explain it to the American people, and I com- I'm committed to continuing to do so and to continuing to improve. So was when she made that statement, was she lying about what they knew? And was she just covering by saying, well, you know, it's really hard. We don't really know what we're doing. Yeah. So I think if I'm correct, the same day that she made that statement, she said that masks were 86 percent effective, which at that time would have meant that masks were more effective than the vaccine. Um, (laughs) And I haven't seen any I haven't seen anybody say, you know, I haven't heard anybody at CDC say, whoops. That was a complete mistake. Um, And this is, again, this is not March 2020. A lot of things that we would have accepted as error in in the early days, by 2021 and by 2022, we already knew what was happening. And yet they persist in this. And the school districts across the country that are opening wearing masks right now, they're going to be opening in a few weeks wearing masks because the CDC insists, continues to insist that masks work. Um, So I 
I don't hear the apologies and I don't hear the the actual um, responsibility taking. And when I say end the CDC, I think that's a really mild mannered thing to say because a lot of people in my Twitter comments are like, no, people need to go to jail for what happened here. And they're not wrong. They're not wrong that no responsibility has been taken. So much has been lost. People died in lockdowns. People died because of the lockdown. And none of this worked. And nobody's saying, I take responsibility. This was my fault. Not a Dr. Fauci, not a Dr. Olensky, nobody. Right. So so you do call for the end of the CDC as opposed to just yeah. a restructuring. And and one no, of the things yeah. that they want to restructure is their communications agency, because apparently it was the way they messages, messaged it, not the message itself. So mm-hmm. the, to your point, no one's taking responsibility. Uh, but are, am I to understand that it is the CDC is still recommending masking? And that's why, like Philadelphia, for instance, is recommending uh, having kids that's come right. back to school wearing masks? Yep, they they still recommend masking, and they have no updated guidance on children masking, despite the fact that we were the only people in the world masking two-year-olds. Um, and it's just an ongoing thing where they can't let go of anything that they misstated or were mistaken on, and it takes them so long to get to it. Um, I think we need to treat the CDC if they if we can't disband them, which I think Republicans should run on. I think they should run on disbanding the CDC, say that this was a complete failure. They had one job and they completely failed at it. And if we can't do that, then I think we need to take them back to being you know, irrelevant, an agency who gives us their opinion on things like you shouldn't eat your hamburger, any cook, anything you know, less than well done. And we're like, thank you for your opinion. I'm going to have my hamburger medium rare. And we move on with our lives. And that's how we have to treat the CDC as like, you know, the, the, the old lady on your street who gives you unnecessary advice. <laughs> well, they do have a huge budget. And uh, for, for the number of people that they have, they have a large budget. Um, I, don't, I can't imagine that the left is going to be down with disbanding the CDC. But I guess, can we roll back the, um, the unprecedented power over our lives that they were given? Can you put that genie right. well, back in the that's bottle? That's up to the politicians. Yeah, well, that's up to the politicians, right? Because the CDC has no actual power. They can't enforce any of this. They can't say, you know, they can't come to your family barbecue and make sure everybody's eating a well-done burger. So we can take away that power from them by having the politicians not cower to them and not listen to them. And, again, th- there's a lot of advice that they give us that we straight up ignore. If you've eaten sushi in your life, you've gone against CDC guidance. I think we should just treat them. If Again, I think we can get rid of them, but I, I don't see the political bravery from Republicans to do that because no. I, I, I think that Americans would absolutely go for this. Even on the left, I, I don't think that anybody would argue the CDC did a good job here. And if they're not doing a good job during the pandemic, a pandemic, you know, when are they doing a good job? What do we need them for? Um, and so I, I, I don't know. I, I think the Republicans should be braver and run on that. But if they don't, then we need to just completely stop listening to them. Yeah, the Republicans do not have that bravery in them to to do that. So um, that's not going to happen. It's like when I go to the doctor, we're just having this conversation off the air. I still have to wear a mask in the doctor's office. And it's ridiculous because pretty much every doctor I know goes, oh, you could take that thing off when when I'm in the exam room. Yeah, you could just take that thing off. Like, why am I doing this then? But we have to go through the the charade because the government says so. I I just have one quick question for you before I run out Mm -hmm. of time. Um, Anita Dunn is a White House senior advisor. And we mm-hmm. find out though that she um, owned, uh, she's a founding partner of a consulting powerhouse, and uh, some of her past business, her past business connections, business dealings, were with Pfizer. Is that right. a problem? 
I mean, all of that's a problem. I think we've had so many uh, people from the health agencies go work for the pharmaceutical companies. And I'm not anti-pharma. I think that they've done some really amazing life-saving stuff. Um, And I I don't want to just be like, oh, I hate pharmaceutical agencies. Uh, But the the little cross-section of health agencies and the pharmaceutical companies, especially now at a time where um, we could not, we can no longer trust these health agencies to give us the actual information of what, for example, what the vaccine does and doesn't do, what the COVID vaccine does and doesn't do, it will continue to cause harm to our public when they cannot trust these agencies because of the cozy relationship they have with pharmaceutical companies. It absolutely will and it absolutely should be, we should hold these people accountable and not let this kind of thing go on. Yeah, absolutely. Carol Markowitz, New York Post, too little, too late. Disband the CDC now. Thank you so much. Have a fantastic day. Thank you so much. 866-408-7669. 866-408-7669. I, I got to tell you, I uh, feel like, as I said, I'm on the longest I told you so in history. I have, uh, I have family members who are going to live their lives um, cowed by COVID forever and ever and ever. Um, I can't go to family events, some family events, because I'm not vaccinated. Uh, they totally disregard any kind of natural immunity. Uh, and when you, when they do start to come around and change their mind, it's like, well, you know, we didn't know at the time and the CDC did the right thing. And they're never, ever, ever going to admit that they were wrong. And um, and I also noticed early on, like places where you didn't wear masks, like people are like, oh, we don't have to wear masks now. I'm like, I didn't wear a mask a lot of places. Anyway, nobody said anything to me. Nobody said boo. And people don't want to get in a fight, right? So, so a lot of people didn't say a word. Or if, And if they looked at me sideways, I'm like, you better back down, back off. If you're uncomfortable, you should move farther away from me. Um, so, so you got that whole thing going on. I don't know. Do you feel vindicated? Because I really do. 866-408-7669. Your call's coming up on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. But they had tremendous power during this pandemic to control the lives of tens of millions of Americans in really bad ways. I mean, children who will never be the same because of mask mandates, people who lost their jobs because of vaccine mandates, people, you know, the crushing of the economy. The loss of trust in public health is catastrophic. And I agree with Howie. Changing or reorganizing the CDC does nothing even close to approaching what needs to be done to restore that trust. That's Molly Hemingway from The Federalist. And we're talking about, you know, the CDC saying we're we're reorganizing and we're finding out things like, yeah, that whole six foot thing was totally made up. Yeah, we really weren't sure. We're just spitballing. But we said, yeah, stay six feet apart. Maybe that'll help. And if you questioned it, if you said things like, you know, it's weird how COVID can't get me when I sit down in a restaurant and take my mask off to eat, but it can get me if I get up and walk to the ladies' room. It's weird how that happens. And if you questioned anything like that on social media, you were shut down. They, they would shut down your account. You were not allowed to question the power of the government. And now, you know, these people have no, no recourse if you didn't get the vaccine and you lost your job. Oh, well, too bad. Remember when doctors in some places weren't allowed to talk to their patients about any kind like ivermectin, hydrochloroquine, any of the other possible treatments that were out there, they were not allowed to talk to them. They were only allowed to give patients the advice that the CDC said they could give. 
doctors lost their jobs. We allowed the teachers union to to make policy for going back to school, not scientists, not that they would have done any better, but we allowed the teachers union to make those rules. And in some, you know, some states, kids are going back to school masked again. And I'm just curious how, how you dealt with this. Did you feel any of this? Did you lose your job? Do you know someone who did? Did you have to get the vaccine against your will? Because I think that that's mentally damaging as well. You feel really violated. 866-408-7669. Uh, in New Jersey, Tony listening on WABC. Tony, you're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Uh, hi, Mayor. I'll make this quick. Yeah, I've got friends. I didn't get the vaccine because I don't do vaccines well. I have a very strong immune system to begin with. Um, you know, it's this Polish-Lithuanian immune system that I got behind me. But um, I got friends of mine that told me I was an idiot, that I was a fool for not getting a vaccine. And now these people are they, they're suffering. They had COVID twice. You know, the same people that took the vaccine have had COVID twice. And me, I've had the, the Nomicron, and I was just knocked out for like two or three days, and that was it. But I think what's going on is, that, you know, the people – We've been dumbed down. Society's been dumbed down to follow, to follow, to follow, to become followers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody has a sense of pride, I believe. And, you know, the people that did take the vaccine, they know deep down inside that maybe they shouldn't have. But yeah. they're not going to admit that they're stupid. Of course you know, not. Yeah, they're not going to admit that they're stupid, but, you know, we can point it out for them. <laughs> We can all serve a purpose. I'm kidding. Tony, I got to run. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think people who got had to get the vaccine who didn't want it, I think that they suffered as well. And that's not fair to them. I'm Mary Walter. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm hearing people talk about the term quiet quitting. What that means is people are not going above and beyond anymore. They're not chasing hustle culture at work. They're just doing the required minimum. Essentially, they're doing what they're getting paid to do. Why does quiet quitting have such a negative connotation, though? Sure sounds a lot to me like creating work-life balance for yourself. That was a TikTok user commenting on something something called quietly quitting. Now that term was popularized popularized by another TikTok user, Zaid Khan. And in the video, um Khan said that you know, this is what people are doing is they're not quitting their jobs totally. But during the pandemic, people learned about a life work balance, right? Just you heard there, a life work balance. And they learned that you know what? The great thing about working from home is I got more time to sleep. I could sleep later in the morning. I didn't have to spend an hour and a half doing my hair and my makeup and getting dressed and everything else. And and I didn't have to drive to work. I didn't spend an hour in the car on the way to work. I didn't spend an hour in the car on the way home from work. I had a better life. I could still do my job, but I had a better life. Right. So now there are some places that are forcing people to come back to work and people are just not going back. I did. I chose not to go back. I'm not doing that anymore. Um, But so but there are some who are back, had to go back. I understand that. And so what they're doing is they're like, you know what? I'm not staying long hours anymore. You don't pay me, you know, enough to be here till six, seven o'clock at night. I'm going to go see my kid's soccer game. 
to get my job done. I'm going to do what you pay me to do, but that's it. And is that a bad thing? 866-408-7669. Basically, people are burned out from the pandemic. A lot of people worked a lot of extra work during the pandemic and they're burned out. I know people who are those those people who push and they want to do the best and they're always doing extra and they're who have said, you know what? I'm not doing it anymore. And for some of them, it's because they realize that my boss doesn't care. They just expect it all the time. I'm not getting anywhere. They just expect me to continue to hustle, hustle, hustle. So you know what? I need this job, but I'm just going to do the bare minimum. And my one friend said, I'm learning how not to care. I'm learning. And that's, it can be a dangerous thing in America. Now, Mike Rowe was on with Brian yesterday and they talked about this quiet quitting. Here's what Mike Rowe had to say. A C plus, a C, you know, it's a passing grade. What is your attitude? What is your philosophy? What is, have you taken the time to think about your relationship with work, right? Like to really think about it. Have you made it the enemy? Have you, uh, suggested perhaps that it's the proximate cause of whatever unhappiness you have in your life. Most people have. So the idea of quietly quitting, I'm sure, is very appealing to a lot of people because they don't have to step up. Yeah. But I think there's there's more to it than that. Um, and if you want to hear the rest of the interview with Mike Rowe, check out Brian's social media channels. The whole thing is posted there. But here's the thing. The people that I know that are doing this are older. These are people who worked a ton during the pandemic, had to work or just in normally in their job. They worked a lot, but they're at that point in their life where they realize, you know what? I'm not going any further than this. This is where I am. I'm going to be stuck in this job until I decide to, to retire. This is it. So they don't see a need to continue to push, 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 push. They learned during the pandemic that you don't have to do that. You know, they, they learned that I can have a work-life balance. They learned that, wow, I actually like ha- being able to spend time with my family. I like having the time to maybe read a book. I like not having to spend two hours in my car every single day getting frustrated on the roads and, you know, just the extra stress of that. Life was less stressful for a lot of people despite them working during the pandemic. So we think there's a, a reason, a variety of reasons why people are doing this quiet quitting. Uh, this, the piece that I found talks about a woman who's an insurance claims adjuster. She volunteered regularly to work on weekends and holidays. But she said during the pandemic, her colleagues retired early or they stayed home. And now, because she was doing so much work, her boss has just increased her workload. She's given more projects outside of her field. And she said, I told my employer they're going to stretch me so far that I'm just going to end up being a pile of goo. It was too much. And I think it exposed a problem in corporate America that they know the people, bosses, of course, know the people that will give the extra, right? They know the pieces that people that will give extra. And a lot of times those people aren't the ones who get promoted though, because for whatever reason, maybe the boss needs them to continue to do extra. Maybe, you know, they're, they're just not the right person for the job, whatever it happens to be. So those people burned out because they had so many extra duties. This woman said, you know what? In, in the spring of last year, she finally said, I'm not volunteering anymore. I'm not going to say I'll do the extra work on the weekends. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And, you know, maybe she got extra money for it. But according to um, a, a company that makes HR software, human resources software, uh, the spokesperson, the cultural director, they have a cultural director, said many workers have shifted to doing the bare minimum. 
no call on weekends, uh, and no pushing themselves to the brink during regular work hours. No more working late into night. They're resolving to meet their job requirements, but no further. You're, they're no longer going above and beyond. Nearly half of white-collar workers say they're turning down projects more frequently now than before the pandemic. 62% say they feel, feel more emboldened to insist on better work-life balance because of the labor crunch. So it's kind of a, a worker's market at this point. You know, people want more flexible hours, etc. I'm curious, do you see this at all? Have you seen it all? Maybe you noticed yourself doing it just a little tiny bit. 866-408-7669. In New Jersey, Joe, listening on WABC, you are on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Yeah, hi. You must be talking about the government employees, you know? Like, <laughs> there's no point to hustle because you, they treat you like a robot. And uh, that's the bottom line. You don't reward people. You don't give them incentives or some sort of a bonus or percentage um, commission, you know. And uh, a lot of people don't get it. And, and companies that do get it, they reward people. They thrive. Well, that's, that's the it. thing. And this is part of it. And I'm sure you've seen this in your line of work, that there are, you know the people who will always do go the extra mile. Like, you know those people who are always there when they need them at the last minute, always there for the weekends. Those people who put, you know, put in and put in and put in. But those people a lot of times never get rewarded for that extra work. Have you seen that? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. That's what most government places, like motor vehicles office. You wait in line for four hours. You don't see anybody hustling. At Walmart... You're not going to wait in line for four hours because the management is hustling. So the pandemic obviously opened people, a lot of people's eyes to this. What does corporate America have to do in order to change this? Good question. It's beyond my pay grade. I'm sure <laughs> you, could, you could answer that question better than I can. That is a perfect response, Joe. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Above my pay grade. People aren't doing any more work above their pay grade. Uh, let's go to Jonathan listening on WLBJ in Austin, Texas. Jonathan, you're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing great. So talking about quietly quitting, people uh, not doing the, the maximum anymore. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I'm I'm in my early 30s. I spent most of my life working, you know, with my hands outside, sweating and stuff. And I finally got a job to where I'm working remote from home. And I'm slowly finding out that it's, it, it's making me complacent. It's making me more lazy because, you know, you have all this free time, like you were saying. You get all your work done, and then you have all this time left over that you just you don't know what to do with but yet you're on the clock and it, it, it's it's hard to find that balance it's it's hard to you know fill in that gap and not be told what to do every you know five seconds like this is your next task this is your next task you know it's not for everybody i don't think working from home is for everybody uh, I have friends who've worked from home since before the pandemic. They just have jobs where they've worked remotely and they're always, you know, uh, he's in his study. She's on the kitchen at the kitchen table. That's where they do their thing. But in their free time when they're not on a call and a lot of their calls are not video calls, they're just audio calls. Um, when they're just working, they'll do things like run out and do some gardening or they'll do, you know, she'll, she'll make dinner or they'll do some cleaning or, or different projects that they still can do even though they're technically still working, they still get their jobs done, but it allows them to do that. But it's not for everybody. Not everybody can just sit in front of a computer for eight hours. And some jobs require that. And that's just not for everybody. 
Yeah, so. and 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 it goes back to like how are you saying if you work for a corporate company like I do, you know, and you work remotely, they don't see everybody that works on this project. So, you know, there's only a, a finite amount of people in my department and we're, and, you know, like they, that one lady was saying, we're being stretched really thin. And, but they don't see that because we're not in the office. And I think that that's, that that's getting away from the higher ups, the corporate CEOs and stuff is that they think they have enough people for the task because they don't see them on a daily basis. Like they're used to. I got you. Yeah. But if you all start quietly quitting, they'll get the message. You know, there, there's that, and I think that's maybe why people are doing it. Well, congratulations on your new job, Jonathan. Enjoy, and I'm sure you'll figure out how to work from home and enjoy it. I, I, I would love to be able to do that. Thank you so much. 866-408-7669. Got some more calls coming in here. I will get to those calls coming up on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Want even more, Brian? Download the podcast at com. Every episode, exclusive interviews, on demand. More of Kilmeade coming up. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. States increased the amount they gave and, ex- and extended the version. Did that have an impact on your workers? It had, a, it had an impact on our ability to hire. A lot of people could, were making as much money or more money not working at all. Right. And so guess what? They chose not to work. Yeah. And it's been, they've been reluctant to come back to work. It's sort of, um, they got used to it. That was uh, John Mackey, who was the outgoing Whole Foods CEO, saying people got used to government handouts during the pandemic. They don't want to go back to work. And then there's those of us who work during the pandemic who I I remember my husband and I, because my my husband works in the medical field. So he was up to his eyeballs in COVID patients. And he he looked at me one day. He goes, if one more person complains that they're bored, I'm just going to punch them. I was like, I know. I know exactly what you're talking about. And they're getting paid. And you and I are working our butts off. And we're we're not getting anything extra from the government. The government should have been paying people who were working during the pandemic. Those are the people who should have got and bonuses or handouts of some kind. But I can't believe people are still, I guess, not working. Uh, I guess. I don't know. We're talking about a new phenomenon called quietly quitting where people got used to just a better work-life balance during the pandemic and they just decided, I'm just going to do it at my job. I'm not going to do the extras. I'm not going to do the extras. It's not happening. 866-408-7669. Let's go to Georgia. Listening on WRGA is Shirley. Hi, Shirley. You're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. How are you? Doing good. Go ahead. Um, what you're talking about, the quietly quitting, there are tons of people in this area, I guess, that have removed themselves from the workforce because I've been out in this community a lot. And there are no regular people working here. I just, I don't know if this is this way across the U.S., but you can't get any help. I went in like five large box stores, Walmart, Target, Staples, Lowe's, Home Depot. None of these stores have any regular people, and they have very few employees. And the people that are left will tell you that they would rather work by themselves than with the people that they were hiring because as soon as they spent a day, some of them too, and they would quit. They would try to train them, and they didn't care. And the people that are working from home, so many of them you call, and they don't really show concern, or, and they can't transfer you to anyone. 
And it's just, it's a mess. And what's been done to this country is unbelievable to me. And overnight, we have nobody really carrying the load anymore. The water department here, the Georgia Power, all these people are new. I mean, there may be a few left that know what they're doing, but most of all these people are new, and most of them are not equipped for these jobs. See, here's the thing, though. I thought that the enhanced unemployment benefits ended in 2021, um, so I, I'm so shocked that it's still, where, where are these people getting their money from? I, I just don't, cause That's I want to get on I that train. Know. I would like to know that too. I, I don't know, but I know I started looking online about all the giveaways from the government and it's unreal. It, nobody would believe unless they get on there and really dig and see even down payments on homes, they're giving them to people. And it says on there, they may not have to be repaid. Hey. At the end, you know, even if they come to you at the end, they may not have to be repaid. Unbelievable. People have just chosen not to work now, I guess. And a lot of the people here, I'll be very honest, a lot of the people here that are working are um, mentally challenged or disabled in some ways, and they're not equipped to handle the jobs that they are trying to do. And they don't stay in them very long for the most part. But I've never seen anything like this in my lifetime, and I'm senior citizen. Wow. Shirley, thank you for sharing that. I have to say, I do like when I see people who are challenged, who are, who have a job and because and a lot of times I just love it so much. And, and there it's, if people had the same zeal that they do for working, the country being a much better place. Uh, uh, on Long Island, listening on WABC, Ron, you're on the Brian Kilmeade show. Hi. Hi, how are you? Doing good. Go ahead. Can you hear, can you hear me okay? Sure can. Okay. So, um, my point, um, I was uh, listening to everything you had to say, and it sort of reminds me of uh, when I used to go to Europe in the in the summers when I was growing up. Um, you'd go there, and people were off for the summer, all of them, like everybody, Germany, yep. Italy, just everyone was on the road camping. And then at lunch, when they did go back to work, two-hour, three-hour lunches. And the thing is, but that's what makes them Europe and America, America. Now, for the young people and other people that are not so young that are taking advantage of, of the government giving out free money and forgiving, uh, making payment backs, uh, payments back on things they promised to pay, it all filters back down to, hey, no score on the game. Everybody gets to get to be winners. Um, and what that what I believe that's going to do is open up opportunities for people that wake up and realize, hey, I can move ahead here. There are winners and losers in every game. And if America wants to be at the top instead of China, they're going to have to wake up and realize that, if anything, this opportunity is a once-in-a-lifetime again for now, an opportunity to wake up and move up the ladder and help their companies or themselves if they have their own small company to work harder to get more if that is still the American dream that we know. Otherwise, we'll be stepping aside and letting China take over and just say, well, okay, you're the lead now and we're part of the European world. Yeah, well, you know, those are all good points, but I see a lot of it going back to corporate America and corporate America just not listening to their employees. Uh, The world is changing and you have to change with it or you're going to be left behind. 
And uh, a lot of people don't want to come back to work after having done their job successfully from home. Why do I have to be back in the office if I did my job successfully from home for 14 months? Why? Um, why, you know, why can't I come back two days a week or a couple of days a week? And a lot of corporations won't work with people. And um, so you wind up with people just walking away or they just said, okay, and they only do the bare minimum because they resent the corporation. So um, very quickly, uh, it's still ice cream season. Miller High Life has partnered with Tipsy Scoop to to create the ice cream dive bar. It's infused with Miller High Life peanut swirl and uh, chocolate, and uh, it's to recreate the atmosphere in a dive bar. So enjoy. I'm Mary Walter. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.